SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 24 with guest Paul Randall. Our guest today is Paul Randall. Paul started in the industry in 1994 working for DEC on the VMS system and check repair tools. In 1999, he moved to Microsoft to work on SQL Server, specifically on DBCC. For SQL Server 2000, he concentrated on index fragmentation, writing DBCC index defrag and DBCC show contig, plus various algorithms and DBCC check DB. During SQL Server 2005 development, Paul was the lead developer manager of one of the core dev teams in the storage engine. Responsible for data access and storage, DBCC allocation indexes, heaps, pages, records, text, lob storage, snapshot isolation, etc. He also spent several years rewriting DBCC check DB and repair. For SQL Server 2008, Paul managed the project management team for the core storage engine to become more focused on customer partner engagement and feature set definition. In 2005, after eight and a half years on the SQL Server team, Paul left Microsoft to join his wife, Kimberly Tripp, another former guest of the show, running SQLSkills.com, and pursuing his passion for presenting and consulting. Paul regularly presents at conferences and user groups around the world on high availability, disaster recovery, and storage engine internals. His popular blog is at sqlskills.com slash blog slash Paul. So welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, finally, yes. For the listeners might not be aware, we've been sort of trying to line up a time for quite some time. So (laughs) that's good. It finally happened. The... uh, what I normally get people to do first up, though, is just to give us a, a bit of a background on how you came to ever be involved in SQL Server in the first place. Well, so um, the first part of my bio you read out, it's, it's, uh, it says that I worked at DEC on the file system. And it's, it's quite a long story, but to cut it short, uh, DEC was bought by Compaq. And at that point, the file system group was in Scotland, and the, the main VMS engineering group was in Nashville, New Hampshire in the U.S., and so we were quite an expensive group to run, flying backwards and forwards to the U.S. So Compact decided that because we were an expensive group to run, they would actually lay us all off. So um, it's it's not often that a, a group of, of 30 operating system engineers all gets laid off at once. So Microsoft got wind of this and sent a delegation over to see if any of us wanted to come over and work at, at Microsoft in Redmond. And uh, one of the guys that interviewed me ended up being my first boss at Microsoft, a guy called Jeff East. Uh, who's now an architect, and he was very interested in me coming and doing some stuff on, on DBCC because of my background in you know the equivalent of CheckDisk on the yeah. VMS files. So long story short, I, I did a few interviews. I came over to Redmond, and everything looked nice, and lo and behold, I came over to Microsoft, and that was me. I started in SQL Server, and I've been there ever since. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. And, and so just, again, I, I went through the bio briefly, but just a little bit about what involvement you've had in the team since you've been there. 
Okay, so um, first thing, actually, the first, very first thing I worked on was bulk load, and uh, that was that was an interesting experience. And I and I got out of that as soon as I could. I didn't like the uh, the bulk load stuff because I'd been brought over to work on on DBCC. So yeah. and then the next thing I did was um, at the time we thought that uh, SQL Server 2000 was actually going to be SQL Server 99, and yes. I was given given <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have a great history of, of, of slipping SQL Server products. As you're probably aware, SQL Server 2005 was uh, going to be 2003 and then 2004 and then ended up being 2005. Um, so the first thing I wrote was DBCC index defrag, which is um, a kind of online alternative to running DBCC DB reindex, which at the time was the only way you could, you could get rid of fragmentation apart from you know, creating a brand new table and sucking all the data over into the new table. Yep. And... Um, that was a really interesting piece of code to write because I, I got to learn a, uh, more than I ever wanted to know about the allocation system and locking and, and logging and, and, and how, the, how, the, how everything works and how I had to work around it to get index defrag to work online. Yeah. Um, so as, as part of doing that, I also revamped ShowContig. And in 7.0, the, um, there used to be two, two ways you could run ShowContig. One of them was ShowContig, and there was this other function called fnindexinfo, which mm -hmm. produced two Results in the same way that ShowContig did. So what I did for 2000 was rewrote ShowContig to actually include the table results functionality, and then to have the with fast option, um, because ShowContig before that always used to take a shared table lock to be able to run through and figure out the fragmentation. So I, I, I wrote a new algorithm that would take an intent shared lock, which doesn't block um, most most queries. So yeah. you could figure out just the fragmentation without doing any blocking. Actually, that's that's been a big change in the product. I must admit, in recent versions, has been the whole move towards online operations. They, they seem to finally understand that you you can't just take everything offline and block everything for long periods to do work. Sure. Yeah, and that, I mean that's that's been a big emphasis of the last couple of releases as we've got to be. Um, well, I say we. Microsoft has got to has got SQL Server to be much more enterprise ready and enterprise capable. You, you can't have an enterprise database that has to go offline when you need to do maintenance. Yeah. Um, so talking about that, the other big thing that we did in terms of DBCC for 2000 was making CheckDB run online. Now, um, most of the algorithms for that were written by a guy called Steve Lindell, who's now one of the, the dev leads in the storage engine. And I had a hand in um, some of the algorithms. And it's very interesting. Some of the I spent days and days and days figuring out uh, the, the order that log records happened in, because the way that CheckDB works online, well, at least in 2000, is... It basically looked at all the log records that happened while CheckDB was running and then ran recovery on those log records inside CheckDB. Yeah. So it had to try and figure out everything that had happened. So uh, a lot of the work in making that stuff work was you know, looking at, at weird patterns of log records and figuring out what had actually happened so that, so that CheckDB could get its kind of transactionally consistent view of the, mm. the data. So I noticed that... I noticed that in 2000, I mean, you always had that sort of possibility of getting false positives. Perfect segue, uh, yep. yep. <laughs> um, so some of these algorithms aren't exactly perfect, and that's because not absolutely everything that uh, we needed to figure out what was going on is, is logged in certain pathological cases. So there were certain cases where I had to make an educated guess as to what was happening, and within those pathological cases, there are sub-pathological cases where my guess was wrong. Mm -hmm. So you could could actually end up getting false failures. You'd, you'd never get a case where it missed a corruption, but you might get a case where it told you there was a corruption when there wasn't. So, yeah. So I've got in, in my wife, case, my yeah, lovely many... wife Kimberly. I have my lovely yes. wife Kimberly trip here with me, who says, 
mostly because you're not smart. So. <laughs> 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 I shall not respond to the peanut gallery. Subtle, <laughs> subtle, subtle as ever. Yes, very subtle. That's, that's Kimberly. If you've ever met her, she's a very subtle, quiet, mousy person. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> she certainly okay, is. Okay, so getting back to the, uh, the topic at hand. And no more comments from the peanut gallery. Thank you. Um, in, in 2005, one of the things I had great pleasure in doing was ripping out all of the code that, um, that did the log analysis to, to get to make it to be run online because we changed from using log analysis to using database snapshots. Um, for, well, for two reasons. Firstly, because of the false failure issue and, and it, you know, without adding a whole bunch of log records and slowing down SQL Server, it wasn't going to be possible to get rid of those pathological cases inside CheckDB. And secondly, because with all the new features coming along in, in uh, 2005, updating all of that, that code to cope with all the new log records for all the new features was just going to be too much of an engineering effort. Yeah. So we ripped it all out and we decided that um, the way that CheckDB would work online from then on would be to take an internal database snapshot, which by its very nature provides a uh, a point-in-time, transactionally consistent view of the database, and then we would run CheckDB on that. So that's I, I one suppose, of the yeah, at least that allows you to take advantage of the work that somebody else had to do anyway. Yes. No doubt yep. to get the snapshots working. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's one of the major differences between uh, 2000 and 2005, is there's now no more possibility of, of false failures. If, if CheckDB tells you that there's a corruption, there really is a corruption. Now, um, one thing to be aware of is that, you know, it's possible you might get told there's a corruption and then you go back and run CheckDB again and it's gone. Now, that's because um, in between the two times that you run CheckDB, somebody may have, say, dropped a table or rebuilt an index and then corrupt page is no longer allocated to anything. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, for, for people out there thinking, well, I've seen that on 2005, that, that's why you've seen it. It's because somebody's changed something in between two runs of CheckDB rather than CheckDB has a bug in it. Yeah. So... So maybe um, if I get you to give us an indication of just roughly what CheckDB goes through when you execute it. Okay, sure. So uh, there's a number of different stages. So I'll, I'll talk about what 2005 does. So what the first thing it does is it has to look through what's called the critical system tables. Mm -hmm. Now, by critical system tables, in, in 2000, there were three obvious critical system tables, which was sysindexes, sysobjects, and syscolumns. Now, in 2005, those tables no longer exist. There are kind of compatibility views that provide the information those used to provide. Yeah. But the, the, the real critical system tables are the ones that provide the um, storage engine and relational engine metadata about tables and indexes and columns. And so there's, there's five of those now in 2005 called sysHobbits, sysAllocation units, sysHobbit columns, sysRowSets, and sysRowSet columns. So each of those has a uh, clustered index. And so by... What I mean by primitive system table checks is we look at every page at the leaf level of those clustered indexes and make sure that we can read them, that the linkages are correct, and so on, because that's the information. That's kind of our base building block that CheckDB is going to use to run all of those other checks. You know, if the metadata yeah. about the database is correct, then how can we trust anything that CheckDB ever tells us? Yeah, I was going to say, if, if there was a problem at that level, uh, I can imagine things aren't looking good for... Right. And so, you know, the, 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 the classic message people used to get in 2000 was... Um, could not read and latch share page in sysindexes. CheckDB stopped. So yep. that, that's one of the, the critical system tables has got a problem in it. And, it, you know, if that happens, there's nothing that CheckDB can do to repair that because, you know, repairing one of these pages is you'd have to 
well, the way uh, CheckDB would repair one of these pages is to delete it, and so you'd be deleting metadata about potentially hundreds of tables. Yeah. So the only way you could repair that is, you know, restore from your backups or you know, put it into emergency mode and, and suck as much data out as you can into a new database. Yeah. So that's the first thing it does. The, the next thing it does is um, it does the equivalent of a DBCC check alloc. So it does all the allocation checks. Mm-hmm. And it's checking consistencies between uh, GAM pages, SGAM pages, IM chains, PFS pages, you know, making sure things like an extent isn't allocated to two indexes at the same time, a yep. page isn't allocated to two indexes at the same time, but these kind of things. Now, these are very, very fast because um, there's generally not very many PFS and, and uh, allocation bitmaps in a database because they, they only occur every, you know, for, for GAMs and the SGAMs yeah. and IMs. In fact, I should probably, probably get you to just define GAM and SGAM for people okay, listening. Okay, so um, a GAM page is what's called a global allocation map. It's a, a bitmap page that occurs every four gigabytes in, the, in every file in the database, and it has one bit for every extent, which is a group of eight pages, that is allocated or not. So it tells whether an extent is available for allocation or not. Okay. Um, an IM page is what's called an index allocation map, and it's kind of the same thing as a GAM page, but it's, there's, there's one per um, four gigabytes per file per index or per, per allocation, as they're now called in, in SQL Server 2005, yep. and that's whether an extent is allocated or not to a particular index. So, you know, one of the allocation checks that we would do is we take all the IM pages that map uh, a particular four gigabyte interval within a file and make sure that you know, only one IAM page has uh, a bit set. So only one allocation, uh, only one extent is allocated to a particular index. Um, what other? PFS page. So there's a PFS page every 64 gigabytes or so, sorry, every 64 megabytes or so. Yep. And that is, there's a byte per page that says, you know, whether it's allocated, whether it's a, um, an IAM page, whether it has any, how much free space it has on it, if it's a heap or text page or whether it has any ghost records, whether it's got any records that are deleted but haven't been removed from the page. Yep. Um, what's the other one? SGAM. So an SGAM um, could be variously called a shared GAM page or a short GAM page. Or um, What that does is it tracks um, extents that are being used by multiple indexes. Now, to, to avoid confusion, because I've just said that extents can only be allocated to a single index, there's a special kind of extent called a mixed extent where... For any particular table, the first eight pages that are allocated to the table uh, are single page allocations. They don't come from a, a dedicated extent. Yep. So an ex- an, one of these mixed extents could have pages allocated to multiple indexes. And so when you want to allocate one of these single pages, um, you don't want to have to do a very, very extensive search to find one of these extents that has a free page in. So these SGAM pages, they occur once per four gigabytes again, same as a GAM page, and they track extents that have three single pages to be allocated to um, as one of these first eight pages. Yeah. So that's what these different bitmaps are. And, Listen, uh, while, while we're on that, one of the things I've, I've sort of wondered about the product myself uh, over some time is the whole concept nowadays of having sort of mixed extents. I'm thinking right. extents are fairly tiny now com- compared yeah. to the databases. I mean, is do you think there really is value in still having mixed extents? No, I don't think so at all. Mm. And... You know, one of the things we, we, we thought of in 2005 was should we get rid of the whole concept of mixed extents? But, you know, we only had five years, so we didn't, we didn't have enough time to, to get yeah. into that. 
Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, yeah it just always the whole concept of you know saving that piddling amount of space, you know, just to make oh, sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it complicates a bunch of the allocation algorithms. It, it complicates CheckDB. It complicates index defrag and so on. So you know, at some point they should get rid of it. So I mean, you could even say that um, the the allocation bitmaps themselves, now that we're into multiple terabyte size databases, aren't as efficient as, for instance, a, a B tree based structure to track allocations. Yeah. And um, there's been various thoughts about you know changing the allocation system, rewriting the allocation system um, in future releases, but you know I don't know what will happen there. Yeah, and it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's an awful lot of work, you know. And we strive to do uh, as as small an upgrade step as possible when um, when upgrading, so that your your downtime is minimized, especially if you don't have any kind of redundant system you can fail over to. Yeah. But, uh, an upgrade like that, where you you completely rewrote the allocation system, would would not be a uh, a particularly trivial upgrade step to run. So. <laughs> no, indeed, and you'd want good recovery options on that one. Yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. So yeah, that's, that's something that's been shied away from. No, fair enough. So anyway, so I interrupted with but definitions, but I think that's good. So you okay, you're saying so they were checked. Yep. Back to where we were. So you run an allocation checks, and again, if everything's okay with then with that, so we've built another another layer of, of trust in, in our building blocks and for for CheckDB. We then go on to running um, the equivalent of DBCC check table for every table, and what what that's doing is um, it's doing stuff like it, it runs a whole bunch of checks on every page in the database. You know, page auditing, um, checking computed column values. Uh, checking linkages between B-tree pages, all those kind of things, checking linkages between tables and non-clustered indexes. That's a, that's a particularly interesting algorithm where um, you know, every, every row in a, in a table has to have exactly one matching row in every one of its non-clustered indexes, and every row in a non-clustered index has to have exactly one matching row in its base table. Okay? Yep. But how do, you, how do you check that? You, know, the, 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 you could think of a brute force algorithm which says every time you come across a row, go and look up its matching row. Okay? But that would mean that you'd be taking random IOs all over the place when running CheckDB, and it would be really slow. So instead what we do is um, we, we use a, a bitmap. And the algorithm works like this. Every, when you come across a, uh, a base table row, you know what non-clustered indexes should exist for that, for that uh, base table. Mm. So you can create all the non-clustered index records that should exist. Okay, so that's what we do. We create yeah. all the non-clustered index records, we hash them, and they, ma they, they hash down to a value. And we match that value to a bit in a bitmap, and we go and flip the bit. Okay? And so the idea is that when we actually come later to read the non-clustered index records themselves, we hash those non-clustered index records, and they map to a value. And hopefully, the value is the same as we generated from the base table row, and yeah. it maps to the same bit in a bitmap, and it flips off again. Cool. Okay, so you know every record should should cause a, a bit to be flipped twice. Yeah. Or you know once for each, well twice for each non-clustered index that exists. Say, and so at the end of the checks, the uh, the bitmap should have no bits flipped. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, if there are any bits flipped, because it's such a lossy algorithm, you can't tell which records don't have any don't have the right matching records. So you actually have to go back and do a rescan of all the pages again, and that's that's what we we call a deep dive. And yep. so um, prior to Yukon uh, uh, SP2, you might have just seen your um, your CheckDB runtime suddenly increase, you know, by hours. Ah, yes. This is the one that it now writes an entry in the log or something. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. Um, and so there was there was no way to tell that this deep dive was happening, and you just you just you know figure well, okay, uh, does it, has it found something? Has it found some kind of problem? Um, 
Now, in SP2, uh, the, the new developer for um, DBCC KDB, a guy called Ryan Stonecipher, who took over from me, he put in a, an error message. So um, in the error log in SP2 onwards, you will actually get an error, an error printed out that's alertable that says that CheckDB is doing a deep dive. So you get some indication, some early indication that it's found an issue. So, and that's interesting because one of the, one of the questions I used to get asked was, um, is there any way that you can expose in some DMV or something how far through CheckDB is and whether it's found any problems or not? Yeah. Now, um, you can't expose you know, which table it's checking because it checks all the tables in parallel. There's, a, there's some algorithms inside it that allow it to do um, very efficient uh, I.O. and read-ahead on pages that it's going to check. So it yeah. doesn't like check table one and table two. Um, but there is, in 2005, we did put in progress reporting. So it can tell you which phase it's in, like, for instance, the critical system table checks yeah. or check alloc or so on, and how far through it thinks it is. And this so is by a percentage request in uh, SysDM exec requests or something? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yes, that's right. Uh, percentage complete, yeah. Yep. Um, now, theoretically, yes, it, it could also tell you when it knows that it's found a corruption. But, again, in 2005, we just didn't get around to doing that. Mm. Actually, while, while on the topic of DMVs, one, one that just came up, uh, I've been sort of interested looking at the 2008 material. Uh, I like the idea that the DMVs tended to be a view of typically non-persisted data, uh, that the, of what the state of what's happening in the system. I was a bit puzzled that they made uh, the, the two uh, new views that replace SP depends. Uh, they made them DMVs, which I thought was kind of odd because they just seemed to be a view of the system catalogue instead of... Uh, of kind of like a dynamic management view, and I was just sort of puzzled that they ended up being DMVs. That's something I don't know about. Mm, <laughs> yeah, it just yeah. it just seemed conceptually kind of an odd thing to me. But anyway, yeah, the I've, I've got a couple of things in that with the 2008 well, at the moment that puzzled me. But yeah, yeah, actually, hold on a minute because there's there's actually um, DMVs is a is a term that's actually used to to describe two sets of um, these new sys dots. Functions. There's actually yeah. dynamic management functions and there's dynamic management views. Yes. Now, the, the functions are stuff like um, sys.dm db index physical stats, which actually yep. goes out and calculates a bunch of information. Mm. And the views are things that do actually report on static information or um, information that's been kept in cache. Mm. So it, it could be that um, they've made them DMVs because they're, it is static information and they just want to make the output more composable. You know, so yeah. you can do joins on it, for instance. So that that could be the reason for them doing that. Actually, another one that um, in that on that same vein, I've been having discussions with them is that I, I quite liked in SQL Server 2005 there was a move towards using DDL uh, for pretty much everything that used to require system stored procs of some type. Yep. And uh, yep. I, I've just noticed again in 2008 they seem to have decided that some things are core and some are non-core. And there's, you know, a whole lot more system stored props coming back in of things that you'd think really could have been DDL. And, and I think what concerns me about that is if they, if they do that, uh, it means you don't get DDL triggers, you don't get event notifications, right. you can't set policies, you know, right. all, all that sort of thing. Uh, just don't know if you have a feeling yourself as to whether <laughs> yeah, there should be a really big dividing line as to what's DDL and what system stored procs. Right. I, I would like to see everything be DDL for the yep. reasons that you just described. 
um, and the you know the kind of party line has has mostly been make everything DDL. Yeah. Um, there there come problems though when um, you know adding the adding the extra work to do DDL for something instead of doing a stored procedure is it's a lot more work to do DDL and to add in all the testing than it is to add a stored procedure. Yeah. So sometimes if the if the engineering budgets are uh, hard and fast, and we want to get a well, we I say Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a hard habit to get out of. Yes, yeah, so it'll take a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if uh, if the dev team wants to get a particularly wants to get a feature in uh, without having to rush through an implementation, then they might choose to do stored procs rather than DDL. Yeah. Um, you know, personally, I'd rather see a few more weeks added to the engineering budgets. But, you know, that, that stuff's not out of it. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, a very good example, I noticed that, like, I mean, we can set a policy now and I can say, look, you know, tables have to be named a certain way, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing to stop me then creating it another way and then calling SP rename and just changing the name of the table, you know, so right. to defeat yeah, the whole point of the policy. So it's... Yeah. Uh, um, even that, I've put a thing up on the Connect side. I think SP rename should be replaced by alter object with name equals, you know, so right. on and so on and so on. Yep. Yeah, I think I'd love to see all those things move uh, to DDL. Yeah. So the, you know, one of the um, one of the things that uh, I'm sure you understand, but some of the listeners may not understand, is you know the sheer volume of requests that get sent in through Connect to any one of the Microsoft products and. And, you know, I have experience with SQL Server, obviously, but yeah. you'd be surprised at how many hundreds and thousands of requests we get for, we, Microsoft gets for, yeah. um, for making changes, like you've just said. And, you know, every one of them is a few weeks worth of development and testing time and, and documentation to add, to add mm-hmm. things. So, you know, these things aren't, aren't trivial to put in, but, you know, some have more merit than others. Yes. And, and <laughs> you know, changing stuff to be, uh, to be all DDL is, is one that I'd really like to see because DDL triggers are so fantastic. I mean, that's a very powerful yeah. feature that, that was added. Mm. But anyway, you, you were uh, talking about uh, still in CheckDB, the things that get done. So, uh, oh, yeah. I suppose one of the, the big differences in this one seems to be that uh, previously people have looked to run a variety of commands, and D, uh, CheckDB now seems to do pretty much everything. Yeah, so... The, the big one is, well, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about what CheckDB actually does. So, you know, one of the things that I've been um, talking about when I do uh, presentations on CheckDB is a slide on exactly what it does, so you know, so people now know. And um, it, it, it does most, it does all of the things that CheckAlloc do, that CheckTables does. Um, uh, it, it does all the things that CheckFileGroup does, because it checks all the file groups at once. Um, one of the things it didn't used to do in 2000, which used to annoy people, was it didn't do DBCC check file, uh, sorry, check catalog, to check the linkage, to check yeah. the kind of higher level logical linkages between the various uh, metadata tables. And so people didn't know whether they should run check DB first and then check catalog or vice versa. So uh, one of the things that I did in um, 2005 was I actually included all the functionality of check catalog inside CheckDB. So once it's done all the steps that I said, it'll then run the equivalent of DBCC check catalog and tell you whether there's any logical discrepancies between the various um, metadata tables. So that's pretty cool. That's great. I suppose one of the other questions is, I suppose it's always a how long is a piece of string thing, but how often do you recommend running DBCC CheckDB? (laughs) Okay, so my favorite answer for people that read my blog and have seen me present is, it depends. It depends. It depends. It depends on so many different things. Um, Every situation is different. Uh, It it depends on your service level agreements. It depends on how stable your I.O. system is. 
depends on what your backup strategy is. Um, the, the main thing is, though, that you have to run it. Okay? You can't just say, uh, well, my I.O. My system is really stable, and I trust SQL Server, so I'm never going to run it. Okay, that's that's like sticking your head in the sand. You you do have to run some kind of. I've seen a lot of sites who do that. I might add over many many years. <laughs> but just don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And and from from all my my work with customers, I've seen plenty as well. Um, and yeah, a lot of it nowadays become is because the databases are so large that running a CheckDB takes so long, and of course adds a lot of CPU and I/O overhead to the system that. They can't complete a CheckDB in their maintenance window, or they're yeah. a 24 by 7 shop and they just don't have a maintenance window. Yep. Um, so it then becomes a question of not uh, how often can you run CheckDB, but how can you possibly run a set of consistency checks? Mm. And you know, there I've, I've helped various customers with um, implementing options apart from running CheckDB. So, uh, with your permission, I'll spend five minutes and run through some of them. Yeah. If you want. Yeah. Okay. So um, first one, obviously, is don't run consistency checks, but that's not a very good option. Okay. So uh, the second one is you can kind of break up your consistency checks. You know, you can do the equivalent of a CheckDB by taking a strategy where, say, take uh, a 10-night period, and say you've got a couple of hundred very critical tables. On night one, you would run DBCC check table of the first 10, and then night two, you'd run DBCC check table of the next 10, and so on and so on. So over the course of 10 nights, you've run the equivalent of a CheckDB on, on all these critical tables. That's one way to do it. Um, another way to do it is to uh, use partitioning. If you have a partitioned, if you have all your tables partitioned, then you can run um, DBCC check file group on each of those partitions. Mm-hmm. Especially if you've got it part- partitioned in such a way where um, you've got a bunch of uh, read-only partitions with not quite so critical data in, and say one read-write partition, you could have a scheme where you know every night you would run a DBCC check file group on your read-write partition, and say once a week on on your read-only ones. And that's another way to split them up. Yeah. Um, there's also the method where you offload the check workload completely to another machine. So you know, every good DBA is hopefully taking regular full backups of their databases. And one of the things that you should do is you should validate your backup because one of the things Kimberly and I like to say is you don't have a backup until you've restored it. Oh, okay, indeed. So, and yeah. and usually getting it wrong is a, a CLM, a career-limiting move. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Um, so you know you've got to validate that backup somewhere. So why not take it over to another system, restore it, and then run a CheckDB on 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 that database? Yeah. Now the the problem is though that if that if the CheckDB returns some corruptions, you don't know whether it's the restored database or the backup or the production database that has the corruptions in. Sure. So then you're kind of forced to go back to your production database and run some kind of consistency check just, just uh, to make at sure least if you know it. At least if it does work, you know both have to be okay. Right. So, you know, there are methods that you can get around having to run a full CheckDB. Oh, and of course, the other one I forgot is to use with physical only. Um, yep. Because nowadays, you're you're not worried about CheckDB causing corruptions. You're worried about uh, things going wrong in your I.O. subsystem. So yeah. um, what you want to do is, is turn on page checksums and yes. then uh, make sure you're running with physical only. Because that, all that does is it does the system table checks, like I said, and then it does the check alloc. But then all it does is run through every allocated page and do a page audit. It doesn't do any of the more expensive logical checks. Yeah. So it's it's an I/O band rather than a CPU band process, and it runs an awful lot faster. Correct. So yeah, there's a there's a bunch of different methods you can use rather than just doing no consistency checks. That's excellent. Well, son, that's probably a good point to take a break, and uh, okay. we'll come back in a few minutes. 
as well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. And so what I get you to do again, Paul, like I normally do with everyone, just anything you're willing to share about where you live and what you're doing and uh, sports and hobbies mm-hmm. or passions. Um, yeah. So one of the things I'm, I'm about to, to blog about, um, Kimberly was away for a couple of weeks in, in India recently teaching. and uh, oh, Of course, we should mention for those that haven't caught the news, the, <laughs> the fact that there was the wedding of the year earlier earlier this year. <laughs> Yeah, and so and I got married in, in July. Yes. Which is very, very cool. It sounded like it was a great event. Uh, I heard uh, Richard and uh, Carl commenting on .NET Rocks and things about... Uh, oh, they did? Yes, about how good it was. So it was great. We, we, actually, we actually recorded uh, a, a session of, well, not quite .NET Rocks, some, some, some drunken interviews at the barbecue <laughs> that we had at the, the house with Carl and Richard, and they've... They've uh, assured me that those tapes will never see the light of day on a .NET Rock show, <laughs> which is just as well. Yeah, but yeah, that that was very cool. So, um, so yeah, she was away for a couple of weeks, and um, one of the things that I like to do is uh, make models. And I've been making a lot of. This sounds very sad, but I've been making a lot of Lego models recently. Interesting. Um, they have some. Yeah, they have some really good. Uh, kind of adult-oriented Lego models, and, and the one that I just got and, and spent two weeks making while she was away is um, a Millennium Falcon uh, from Star Wars. They, they put out their biggest Lego set ever, which is... I, I know awesome. the one you're talking about, and the reason I know 5, that is... Yeah, my father-in-law is a mad Lego guy, and oh, really? yeah. he has that same one. <laughs> right, yeah, I, I've, I've been a, a Lego freak since I was a kid. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I got it. It arrived the day before Kimberly left, and I, I spent probably 24 hours over the two weeks that she was away putting <laughs> together. And it's, it's absolutely stunning. It's mm. you know the little Lego figures that you get. It's, it's kind of uh, modeled to be the same, uh, the same scale as these little Lego figures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's very cool. I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna take some photos of it and, and blog it today with. Uh, Excellent. We'll get up to when Kimberly's away. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look on the blog. That's great. Yeah. Um, oh, what else we like? Of course, we like to dive. Um, I, ah, yeah, so I you're into diving as well. Yeah, we uh, yeah. talked a, a bit to Kim about diving over over the years, but yes. Right. So I'd, I'd always wanted to get into scuba diving, but I'd, I'd never met anybody that was into it. And then, of course, mm-hmm. when I hooked up with Kimberly, it was a perfect opportunity for me to learn. So about a year ago, I did my um, my PADI open water diving certification out here in, mm-hmm. in Puget Sound because uh, we live in, in Redmond. Yeah. Um, where there's a ton of ton of water we can go diving, and then uh, last Christmas and New Year we went out to uh, Indonesia to a, a place called Wakatobi, where there's some fantastic diving. And in fact, Kimberly went out a few weeks before me and spent a couple of weeks on what's called a liverboard, where you, yeah. you go on a boat and um, you don't get off the boat basically apart from to dive. And uh, she went round some of the Indonesian islands, including Komodo. So she actually went to get to, to get onto 
uh, Komodo and, uh, and Rinka and see the Komodo dragons up, mm. up close, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so diving. But unfortunately, we've been so busy this year, uh, we haven't actually got a dive trip in. So I don't think we're yeah. going to get diving until 2008. And look, I, I suppose the other thing about tropical waters is they tend to be so clear and uh, and warm. <laughs> they are. They are. They are very very clear. I mean, you can get one to two hundred feet visibility under the water, which is just incredible. Yeah. Um, the other problem, well, problem with Indonesian waters, apart from the fact that they're very clear, is they discharge their sewage raw straight into the sea. And so yes, if indeed. To, if you happen to swallow any water like I did, then a couple of weeks later you get a really nasty intestinal problem that can last for three weeks like mine. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the downsides. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, I've, uh, I think yeah, a number of places I've been, I've found that I had uh, a bit of time I did at Cook Up, which is a little fishing village uh, in uh, mid-Malaysia. Uh, a year or two back, and uh, they invited us for a fish lunch and everything, and I thought, no, I just can't do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. After no, after no. watching the water in the area. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I mean, of course, I didn't know this until after I'd been there. So, um, <laughs> so I, I I'm now when I hopefully I'll go back at some point and do some more diving, but I will be keeping my mouth completely closed. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> good. Yeah. So listen, um, you've been doing a, a bunch of work on 2008. Uh-huh. Until the point you left, obviously. Yes, yeah. So there's some very, very interesting things happening in in 2008. So uh, I, I'm be happy to tell you about some of the, the things I think are the most mm. interesting. If you want. Um, so the, uh, of course, my background is all in corruption and, and data recovery. So one of the cool things that's happened in database mirroring is the facility to automatically repair corrupt pages. Yep. So. If you think of the database mirroring as a partnership, there's a, a you know the, the principal in the mirror database, and they're exact copies of each other. So the way this feature works is, if a an I/O error occurs on a page in the principal database, then uh, database mirroring will notice that there's been an I/O error. It'll go over to the the mirror and request the exact page from the mirror. And if that is not corrupt too, which you know odds are it won't be, yep. it sucks the page over and just automatically replaces the page on the on the principal. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's even cooler is that the same thing happens in reverse. If while log is being redone on the mirror, it comes across a corrupt page in the mirror, then it'll go across to the principal and get the page and put it over to the mirror. Now, although it's doing this cool thing, that is not a replacement for noticing that there's been a corruption of some kind and taking some action to make sure it doesn't happen again. It's just a way of reducing downtime, kind of you know, applying a Band-Aid um, while you figure out what's going on. And, yeah. Uh, In fact, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I spent a lot of time working at HP, and I was doing engineering and back in the 80s. And even then, you know, uh, the thing that always amazed me is the number of uh, places where people had things at the higher level on disk drives and things and thought, yeah, we can just fix things and deal with it and whatever. But in the end, they, they never seemed to understand that there was something wrong if that starts happening, you know, in, in the right. first place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the pieces in, in my presentations on, on CheckDB, I always have a page on bad advice. And one of the things I see over and over again in, in, the, in the forums is, you know, people saying, okay, just restore from your backup or just run repair and just carry on. Nobody yeah. ever says, do root cause analysis and figure out what actually happened. Yeah. And, <laughs> That's right. Disk, disk subsystems that are returning bad data, you know, don't usually get better by themselves. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, and, and the next time it happens, you might not be so lucky that you can, you can, you can run repair or you can run restore. You might be completely hosed. Yeah. So, 
Um, so actually, there's a, a tool that I'll plug, the, a tool called SQL IO Sim that the, the SQL team put out yes. back in 2007, 2006, I think. Yeah, it to sort of um, stress the system. Yes, it, it's a replacement for the old IO stress, and it'll it'll crank up the IOs more than SQL Server can, uh, more than any of the the, the IO subsystem vendors' uh, tools will as well. And it'll tell you whether it's it's coming across you know corruption issues or stale reads or stale writes or, or things like that. So yeah, uh, and it's you know it's totally free, and there's there's information on various. Um, sites, you know, the PSS engineer's blog about how to interpret the results and, and what it's actually saying. So, you know, if you're, if you're ever having corruption, anybody that's listening, if you're having corruption, download and run this tool, and it'll help tell you where there's a problem. Listen, one question I do have with the automatic page recovery, uh, when I was at sessions, uh, Don Valene was showing that sort of earlier in the year, and uh-huh. the, he was sort of executing a command, and then you'd see the command fail, and then... And you get an 824 or something back. But then sometime later you'd execute the command and the command would work fine. The, the thing that wasn't clear to me is whether there was any indication to the client that potentially the page might come back okay later. Okay, so the answer is no. Mm. So, you know, you run a query and you get an 824 error, which is, you know, the page checksum problem or, or some other IO error. Yeah. Um, the query will fail and it will repeatedly fail with that IO error until um, uh, until the page is, re- is, is, is repaired. So mm. there's at the level that that happens, at the level the query uh, happens, you know, it doesn't know that mirroring is running. It doesn't know that automatic page repair might kick in and 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 fix the page. Um, so the only error it can really give is the fact that it hit an I/O error. It's yeah. up to the application logic to 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 do a retry. Yeah, in fact, and that's the trouble is that I think, uh, so I've put an entry up on the Connect side about this. I, I think even if it doesn't know if that particular page is any chance of coming back, I, I think it, it almost needs to have some sort of way that the client knows that, you know, we're in a mirror, it is synchronized. Uh, yeah, you know, there's some chance that retrying, right. uh, yeah. I mean, rather than just retrying blindly for the, for the sake of it. Sure. I mean, you could, um, there is a way that you could code that up in your application because you could actually look at the um, uh, one of the DM, one of the mirroring DMPs. Oh yes, the, the system uh, mirroring endpoints are one of those, or the mirroring yeah. ones. Yes. You could look and see whether that database is actually mirrored, and then yeah. you know, trigger uh, a more intelligent retry based on that in your application. But my guess is the odds of most applications do uh, developers doing that is probably zero. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you, know, you never know. Sometimes, I mean, it was a bit like retrying deadlocks in the old days and things. And I, I find the same if I try and get people to write code to retry for cluster failover and, and those sort of things. Mm. I mean, if if they embed it in the code at a low enough level, then you know it, it's it's not that big a deal, you know, um, because hopefully it's a a common piece of code that you know gets reused umpteen times. But yeah, yeah. The trick, I guess, is is educating people. And one of the things that um, you're probably well aware of, and, and I've always lamented while I was at Microsoft, is you know books online is absolutely fantastic, but we 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 bang out a whole bunch of features. We Microsoft bangs out a whole bunch of features and tells you how to use the features, but but doesn't give you more of the kind of peripheral information around programming around the features and, you know, combining things together and coping with failures and stuff like that. Yeah, no, indeed. And it, it, it is that prescriptive guidance that's the, the, the real issue. It, yeah. it, uh, I find the same at the moment. There's the, um, and we'll no doubt have this in a separate show in some detail, but 
uh, all the discussion at the moment around link and uh, link as a language construct, but then link against SQL and so on. The, right. the thing that the thing that um, I'm finding frustrating is that all the examples tend to be things that will fit nicely in a five to seven minute demo, but 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 they're very very short of of appropriate prescriptive guidance. Mm. So, I anyway, so at the moment, right? there's yeah, there's no obvious. Yes, that's right. That's what we do for a living. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so yes, there shouldn't be. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. No. Uh, the uh, so apart from that, so mirroring, there's also the compression. Mm, yeah. So um, one of the problems with uh, mirroring a uh, a very active database is that there's an awful lot of log that has to be sent over your communications link between the principal and the mirror. And yep. so if, you're, if your link is constrained by, uh, if it has bandwidth con- constraints, then that can lead to, uh, if you're running in synchronous mode, it can lead to delays in transactions committing because it has to wait for the log to get hardened on the mirror. Or if you're running in asynchronous mode, it can lead to a very large send queue building up on your mirror, such mm. that if a failover occurs, you lose a bunch of data. Yeah. Now, um, what they've done in, in 2008 is they've put in what's called log stream compression. There's a... Um, a proprietary um, compression algorithm that Microsoft has that they've, they've implemented. And in some of the testing, they've actually achieved up to five times log compression uh, based on um, uh, compared with no compression at all. Now, small problem with that is it takes CPU to do it. So um, you do get an extra CPU load. So if your system's already completely pegged, then you might not be able to use compression. But yeah. there is a... It's on by default when you when you're running 2008, but there is a yep. trace flag um, to, to be able to turn it off. Yeah, so, look, I, I see I see very very few SQL Server boxes that are ever anywhere near CPU bound. So right, yeah. I mean, there's the there's the odd one occasionally, and it'll be something that's causing massive recompiles all the time or something. But yeah. a, apart from that, most seem to be disk bound, and the and even a single CPU would have been enough, and people are throwing, you know, four and eight proc boxes at it, and right. you can barely often even see a heartbeat, you know, occurring in the yeah. processor. So yeah. Yeah. Now the one, one of the um, the reasons that I'm I'm quite excited about the, the log stream compression is um, I get a lot of questions about okay I've got this mirrored database but mirroring needs full recovery mode, which means all operations are completely fully logged, including things like doing an index rebuild. Yes. So. If I put mirroring on my system, then I can't do uh, as efficient index maintenance as I could before because I can't use bulk log recovery mode. Yep. Now, um, the reason, uh, because log stream compression is also going to compress all the log records to do with index rebuilds, then uh, that may allow, depending on the data formats and so on, it, it may be enough compression that it allows uh, better index maintenance in some of these VLDBs that, that have very yeah. large indexes that get rebuilt. So, yep. so that, that's pretty cool. Actually, while we're just on compression, uh, I suppose we should mention the sort of page compression. Is that uh, an area of uh, local knowledge for you as well with um, changes with 2008? Yeah, I know a pretty uh, decent amount about that. Mm. So um, there's going to be various things that uh, compression does. Um, It's going to be able to store... um, Well, basically, the the page format, when you have compression enabled, is going to change. Well, the record format is going to change so that you have... Every column is actually going to be stored as a variable length value. Uh, so there's no, there's going to be no concept of fixed length and variable length portions of a record anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, um, okay, so a um, couple of different types of compression that there are. Um, the first one is um, being able to compress column types. So, for instance, 
Um, you know, in much the same way that the VAR decimal worked in um, SP2 of, of 2005. Um, imagine a, an integer column, which is actually stored as four bytes. It's a fixed-length fixed four-byte column in, in 2005 and before. Imagine it's storing the value 0 or 1. Now, you don't need four bytes to store the value 0 or 1. You can compress that down to a couple of bits. Sure. So that, that's one of the things that um, 2008's compression is going to do, is actually change the row format such that all column values are stored as, or can be stored as variable length columns. So they're all represented as variable length columns now. But if a, if a value can be uh, compressed down to, to less than its defined width, less than the data type width is usually stored, th then it will be. And that's, that's, that can be represented very efficiently in this new uh, row format. Um, the, one of the other things that uh, can be done is what's called page level compression, where uh, part of that is if you have um, records that have repetitive column values. And this is uh, common in, in some uh, applications such as SAP, where um, you might have every single column value has you know, a, a country value in it or a yeah. state value in it. For instance. I, like I, I see that very commonly, particularly in things like audit tables. Right. That right. would lend themselves really well to that sort of thing, where well, you'll have a, a certain user being repeated endlessly down through the rows. Right. So what we can do then, what, we, what Microsoft does then, is um, it will uh, it creates a, a kind of dictionary record on the page and extracts out the common values and replaces the common values in the data or index records uh, with a token. And the token provides a lookup into the dictionary record. Yeah. Now, you can achieve a, an awful lot of space saving this way. Now, the problem comes, there's a trade-off between space saving and CPU usage. Sure. Okay? Now, the, um, the, the pages are stored uh, in their compressed formats in the buffer pool, and it's not until um, something in the, in the access methods actually wants to uh, retrieve something from a page or a row that the, um, the page is effectively decompressed. Yeah. So, um, but the upside uh, is we fit far more rows now in the buffer pool as well. Abs yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, the reason this compression is there is, obviously, uh, Oracle and IBM both have compression, so it, it, it used to be a, a big problem my, with uh, migrations of large databases from Oracle or IBM uh, to SQL Server, where suddenly, the, the, because there's no compression in SQL Server until 2008, the size of the database would suddenly bloat. Uh, yeah. And that could be a big turnoff for, for migration. You know, even though you're saving money on the software and the... And the um, uh, maintenance, you're, you're actually paying a lot more for the storage and for looking after the storage. Yeah. So, so that's going to be a big boon. And, and um, from what I've seen talking to customers when I was at Microsoft, uh, that's one of the most hotly anticipated features in, in 2008 is data compression. Yeah. Oh, if I, if I ask customers what the most hotly anticipated thing is, it's the date and time data types. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, is that the, the, the stuff that was, was cut out of 2005? Yes. Yeah. And I think yeah, people were long, long waiting for it at 2005. Right. <laughs> so it's uh, when I've been going around, I've been going around the country doing a whole lot of uh, early look at 2008 sessions and mm -hmm. the... Uh, and the separate date and time data types are the woo-hoo moment <laughs> you know, in the session. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Uh, the other one you were going to uh, also mention in 2008 was uh, dealing with petition tables. Yes. So um, there's a change in, in the way that parallel plans work in partitioning. In, in 2005, 
um, the way that a parallel plan would work over a partition table is one thread would be allocated to each partition to, to process that partition in, in terms of, say, a scan, for instance, with a, with a bunch of search predicates. And so if you had the situation where um, one partition was much larger than the others, then all the threads on the smaller partitions would complete, and then the, the runtime of the query would be bounded by that single thread uh, running through the, the large partition. So uh, data skew, basically, would, would, would could screw up the performance of your parallel plans on partitions. Mm -hmm. So in, in 2008, they've added an option. Uh, hey, I managed to say they rather than we. Hey, yes, instead of, <laughs> instead of we, yes. <laughs> um, they've added an option where you can switch the way the parallel plans work such that uh, instead of doing one thread per partition, all the threads will process all the partitions in sequence. So uh, say you've got a, an eight-way box and you're running eight threads. So eight threads will process the first partition, and they'll each process a little chunk of that partition. And then as soon as the thread has finished processing a chunk of the first partition, it'll move to the second partition. So essentially, um, you've moved from a one-to-one -one model to a many-to-one model. So if you've got this data skew, uh, situation, you'll get to the, the very large partition, and all the threads will be parting on that partition. So it'll reduce the runtime of your, yeah. of your query in those situations. So that's I think great. that's cool as well. Yeah. yeah, actually, I suppose while we're on that, just a little parallelism one. One of the discussions that comes up often in the performance groups and uh, uh, is to do with the setting of max degree of parallelism, max doc. Mm -hmm. And have yep. you got any sort of guidance for people as to whether you think you, they should ever change that? Um, okay, so the, the issue that I hear of is in terms of predictability. Mm -hmm. um, now, I know, for instance, that SAP recommends that anybody running SAP sets max DOP to one. Yeah, which so, means so single processor, single thread, yeah. Single processor, single thread. Yep. So you never get any parallelism and you get a degree of predictability. Um, so, you know, as with any one of these, uh, what's the advice you could give? I can't give any advice that's going to fit everybody. There's no one yeah. size fits all answer. Um, what I would say is um, when, you're, when you're testing your application, test it with a production workload, which many people don't. Yeah. Okay? Test with a full production workload and, and see which way works for you. Okay? That's, that's about the best I can yeah. say. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. We had uh, our SQL down under CodeCamp in Wagga uh, last weekend, which was... Uh, yeah, I was... I was actually uh, talking to Brian Madsen, who was... Ah, Brian, yes, excellent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, Brian was out. Actually, it was, uh, he hadn't managed to get along the previous year, so he was he was really right. pleased to get along this year. And yep. uh, so, obviously, he must have enjoyed it, so if he mentioned it. Yes, he did, very much so. Yeah, no, it was a great weekend. And uh, I just uh, mentioned that one because Kevin Klein was out as well. And, uh, Kevin, oh, really? Cool. Yeah, Kevin was sort of in many situations sort of recommending that people actually yeah, kill off the parallelism and set it to one. And, uh, and I, I, that was, I wondered if that was kind of uh, quest-related experience, and, and I wondered if it was to do with, yeah, things like SAP or a lot of those large systems. I have seen that specific recommendation. Yeah, it, it's basically down to predictability. You know, with, with single, single product, single thread, you have predictability, whereas with multiple, um, sorry, with the ability of the, the query processor to parallelize uh, on the fly, depending on the resources available to it, you, you don't get the predictability. Yeah. So if you've got an SLA that says, you know, this query has to reply to this client in a certain number of milliseconds, the only way to really be able to uh, guarantee that is to go to uh, a certain max degree parallelism. Yeah. Yeah, I think our, I'm, I'm always amazed uh, in .NET coding, I do just the 
trying to do any sort of multi-process, multi-threading code is just so hard anyway. And it, it must be quite a handful trying to have decent uh, parallel execution plans. Uh, I have a great respect for whoever wrote a lot of those. Uh, the, yeah, uh, it seems all the all the, the developers on the uh, query processor team all have PhDs in their particular area of query processing. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, so they're I, a very smart bunch. Ironically, I remember a couple of years ago I was talking. I got a chance to spend a bit of time with Jim Gray, and I remember him talking about uh, multi-processing. And he, he sort of described there were three phases people went through, and there was the the phase where it all just looked like uh, voodoo or <laughs> or magic. Uh, yeah. Another phase where you think you understand, and uh, and then you get confident, <laughs> and then there's a third phase where you get wise, <laughs> right? <Yep. laughs> and then you suddenly find out all the things you didn't think uh, you you, yep. you really didn't follow. <laughs> yeah, uh, very true in any programming language, absolutely. Yeah, indeed. So listen, well, thanks for that. But I suppose the other thing we need to know is, um, so where are we going to see you? Uh, what what's happening? Okay, so the um the next. Two things that are coming up for us are uh, SQL Connections in Las Vegas in three weeks' time, where we're doing uh, a couple of pre-cons, a bunch of sessions, and a post-con. Um, and then we're flying over to Barcelona to do TechEd IT Forum. IT Forum, yes. Yep, IT Forum in Barcelona. And I'm, I think uh, Jeff Wharton is going to be there helping proctor some of the instructor-led labs that, that Excellent. we're going to be doing. So that's going to be. Yes, Jeff's uh, uh, organised the Canberra SQL group. So that's yes, right. and, yeah. and 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 was there on the weekend helping me out as well. I must admit, with the with the Code Camp, it was fabulous. Right. Yeah. Um, after that, I guess the uh, the next the next conference we're going to be doing is probably um, Connections in Spring. Hmm. It's going to be in Orlando. Um, and in fact, we've just put out a, a call for abstracts. For or for that conference because um, I'm yeah. going to be a co-chair of the Connections conferences from now on with with Kimberly, which is pretty cool. Excellent. Um, now, in terms of, I'm sure you want to know, in terms of getting down to Australia. Yes, that would be good. Yeah, we, I know. The diving is good. The diving. I know the diving is good. Kimberly's <laughs> dive. She's been out on a Michael Willowboard <laughs> on, the, on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, the very earliest we'll be down there is is uh, after summer next year. Yeah. We don't have any concrete plans to be down there, but we would love to, and we keep saying we're going to come down there. Um, <laughs> it's not going to be till after the summer next year, so maybe yeah. maybe uh, late summer or fall next year we might get down there. Excellent. That's stuff. great. But yeah, we're it's uh, it, it's crazy busy, as, as you well know. You know. Indeed. <laughs> That's great. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Paul. It's uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Thank sorry you. it took so long to get us all hooked up. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Thank you. That's great.